Hi, everybody. I've been sleeping like garbage. I legit think I have a sleep disorder. It is Wednesday, the 11th of January, 2017. Hope you're doing well. This is the Promotional Law Practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm the host of this lovely podcast. My name is Luke Thomas, and uh, you guys know that already. Uh, today on the podcast, we will likely get to, I haven't even looked at the questions today, but I'm guessing there's going to be a fair amount about Mark Hunt's lawsuit against the UFC in there, even though he's still competing at UFC 209. Uh, BJ Penn returns on Sunday, not Saturday this year, uh, I'm guessing due to NFL playoffs. Um, so that will be something to get to. Um, the card itself is kind of interesting. Well, parts of it are anyway. Uh, parts of it are quite nubs. Um, so yeah, so there we are. Uh, anything else you want to get to, you can, we can do that as well. Uh, I did this, I believe, the last week. I'll do it again this week. It should be there already. If you look in the description box below, um, I put the MMA fighting link where all the questions are listed. So you can sort of follow along if you want from there. And by the way, if you get at me at SBN Luke Thomas on uh, Twitter and use the hashtag chat wrappers, all this is explained in the post. Um, I'll get to your questions towards the end of the live chat. So there we are. So thank you so much for joining me. I have my coffee. All right, that's the District of Columbia. This is the capital of your country if you live in uh, Los Estados Unidos. Barbas is here. Um, look, Eric. Oh, what are you doing, dude? You got a haircut. Look at him. Handsome, huh? Churro. All right. Forget about him. Uh, and by the way, I had to take my dog last week to get her uh, other one, uh, not this one, not this idiot, uh, to get her teeth fixed. 100% recovery. Shout outs to uh, Helping Hands in Richmond, Virginia. If you guys are in the area and you want to get, it's not a full service like a vet service, but if you want to get, um, um, if you don't want to have to make a choice, I mean, I'll, I'll follow me on Twitter. I'll explain later because I don't want to waste any more time with that nonsense that you don't care about. All right. <laughs> First question, calm down. I'm calm. Now, it's not wrecked, so I'm still going to read it, I think. Is there a case that some of the current doom and gloom from hardcores is somewhat short-sighted? The interim and money fights represent a small fraction of total fights. In order to get those fights, all fighters will have to build momentum with the casual fan base, and they can only do so by winning. Yes, it could be manicured, but it will still be a relatively lengthy process. I'm not saying I like unnecessary interim belts, but we do have to bear in mind that this is really only taking place because of Connor. Look outside of that, and things are pretty much business as usual, i.e. 90% of fights, 95% of fights, excuse me, are not title or interim title fights. I'll say this. There's a lot of the, the signal-to-noise ratio is not quite right. I, I Okay, so I've made the argument many times that the architecture of champion contendership, having a cue, that that is a valuable thing to preserve. You, you, you want that. You don't want to be rigidly stuck to it, uh, but you don't want to sort of glibly ignore it either. I don't, I don't think that's the right call. And um, you're seeing a lot of talk in the media about money fights, but in terms of how many fights are being made like that, First of all, it's a lot more than just Connor, but point well taken, it's not some scourge that has radically altered the landscape of what we currently enjoy. For example, 
Uh, Tyron Woodley made a lot of noise about not fighting Wonderboy Thompson, and he had his reasons, but he ultimately did and fought quite well, albeit to a draw. However you want to think about that, that's what the official conclusion was. Then he made some additional noise, although sort of going to the Maya route would not be a super fight or a money fight, but certainly not following a traditional path, and ultimately he took a rematch. Now, you might say that the Maya fight was a better one for him to take, uh, would have followed that architecture a little more closely, and I wouldn't disagree with you. However, uh, if you're going to make a rematch um, for the various thing, reasons we've listed previously, one of those has been like when they make these rematches, if someone just gets blown out, which I've never really understood, except in very rare circumstances, um, this one was very close. So there's a reason to now pursue a rematch. So, and, and ultimately, we'll see who Cody Garbrandt fights, for example. And Tony Ferguson and Habib Nurmagomedov appear to be fighting each other. So, like, there's a lot of talk about these strange permutations. And there is some of that going on. Michael Bisping did not fight the top contender. He fought Dan Henderson. He's been looking for a fight with GSP. And now he's talking about Tyron Woodley. But, again, a lot of that is just sort of media chatter. What we really need to follow is who actually takes a fight outside of that beaten path. And to an extent, the Cody Garbrandt fight was supposed to be one of those two. Lo and behold, Cody Garbrandt totally earned, uh, or I should say, ultimately proved that he was worthy of the title shot. So, um, point well taken. There is a little bit of hysteria around it, but there is also, I think, a lot of nonchalance about why do we really need those systems if they're so deeply flawed, which they are. You need them because they are the best way in which to organize the sport, I believe. You know, I, I remember distinctly, distinctly, right around 2007 or 2008 when MMA was really cooking up, and uh, 2009 even, one of the things casual fans used to tell me was, man, all the best fight the best in this one, right? That doesn't mean that there's a super fight between elite fighter with a high Q rating versus another fighter with another high Q rating. If you don't know what a Q rating is, you can look it up. It's literally the letter Q, Q rating. It's essentially someone who has the most amount of um, visibility or public awareness or popularity. It's a, it's a composite score. And you'll note that when Bellator was sued by Rampage Jackson, or vice versa, I can't even remember this one, how, which one, how, way that went down. But in any case, um, Bellator had noted they looked at his Q rating before they had ever signed him under the Bjorn Rebney era. Anyway, um, putting those two together was not necessarily seen as the ideal, although there were, of course, efforts to put a GSP civil fight together. But it was the best fight, the best. This is why I love, if, they, if it eventually is true, that Habib is going to fight Tony, that's 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 it right there. That's what you're looking for. That is the thing. Um, and, it, you know, someone might argue, oh, it's contender picking off another contender. It kind of has to happen because there are two contenders at a crossroads, essentially. Um, and one needs to, to battle out for supremacy. And um, that's the fight to make. Absolutely, that's the fight to make. Jose Aldo would be an interesting permutation. I don't deny. It's not the fight to make. It's not. Does not when 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 you saw what happens when a champ leaves a division, it creates uh, and doesn't defend the title while they have it. It creates chaos. It creates chaos. To the extent you can limit that, I think is a good thing. All right. All right. Hey Luke, LegendsofMMA.com claims to be the official MMA Hall of Fame. That's great. True or false? Uh, next question. Brock Lesnar will return to the UFC cage when his suspension ends in the summer. Mm, false. 
TJ Dillashaw's style would give Cody Garbrandt more issues than Cruz's style did. True. As a fan, it's annoying when newly crowned champions immediately call for super fights instead of defending their titles. Absolutely true. Here's the thing about that, though. Do I blame Tyron Woodley or Michael Bisping, particularly Michael Bisping, who's at the very tail end of his career, or even a Cody Garbrandt for trying to maximize their position? No, of course not. Like, I'm not mad at them for trying to seek this out. I'm not going to be one of the fighters who's like, they're cowards. They're not cowards. I mean, they're just trying to make a lot of money. Hardly the worst thing in the world. The only thing I would say is, as media, and particularly you guys, uh, as consumers, I mean, I'm a consumer too, but I, you know, I guess I wear many hats. But if you're just a consumer, I would I would ask you to exercise some discretion. You know, these guys may want that. That doesn't mean you have to give into it. Or maybe it does. Maybe that's what you want. But if you really believe a title uh, 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 needs to be defended by the champion, as many of you did when Tyron Woodley won the title and, and had to face Wonderboy Thompson, say so. Use discretion. Say something about that. Um, so it's not a question of, oh, my God, I'm so mad at Cody Garbrandt or Tyron Woodley or wh whoever the case may be. It's, it's not that at all. Um, if they can win the battle of public opinion, there's something to be said for that, although even then there's a little bit of limit to, that, to the value of that argument. But the point being is they're allowed to try and convince you that that's a great thing for them and for you and for everybody in the sport, and that's that's there's no cost to it. And good luck to them trying, but you should exercise some discretion about whether or not that's true. And if you really believe that contenders need to be given shots at titles, that titles have to be defended, that champions have on some level a responsibility to the weight class, um, then you have to reject those arguments. It's surprising how calm and composed Garbrandt was in the cage compared to his erratic behavior outside of it. False. It's mind-boggling how high-level wrestlers like Hendricks and Bader don't go for submissions given how much grappling control they have. It's mind-boggling. I wouldn't call it mind-boggling, but it's an interesting note. Tony Ferguson wanted more money from the UFC so he can cash out after he loses to Habib. False. Having a smaller amount of stacked fight cards will garner more ratings as opposed to having a large number of less stacked cards. Not necessarily. I generally do believe that less is more, but it's a careful balancing act you have to go up against. It depends on whether you can have a stacked card, but if it's on the wrong night, it can get crushed. Um, if there is very little competition, you don't have to have a stacked one, and it can do quite well. Um, a non-stacked card can do well at the gate and, and pour on ratings, or vice versa, right? So you have... UFC 206, which did not do great on pay-per-view, but did really well on television. And at the gate, you have UFC on Fox, what was it, 22, whichever one was Shevchenko versus Holm, 21 maybe. Uh, maybe even 20, I can't remember at this point. Um, that did poor at the gate, but did great on TV, was not stacked at all. So it's a, it's complicated. I would love to say you just need to have 10 cards a year and you'd be great. I certainly think there's a point of diminishing returns. You know, I would say... Um, you know, 10 to 12 pay-per-views, the four Foxes. Um, you know, somewhere in that 35 to 40 show mark, given the current size of rosters and the ability of the UFC to promote, is probably ideal. Somewhere in there, maybe even between 30 and 35, something like that um, is probably, maybe 35-ish, give or take five shows, is probably a nice mark. 
But I think once you start getting above 40, you begin to really just um, turn a product into mush, even if it does okay ratings. That's the other component here. Like, I forget what show it was. It was the one that was in Croatia, I want to say. The one that was JDS versus Rothwell, which was a fine fight. But the rest of that card, like some of these European cards, I mean, they're Cage Warrior shows. They can call what they want. These 75% of those guys are not uh, deserving of any elite-level um, designation. Is that really what you want to spend your afternoon watching? Like, sure, if you're a super hardcore MMA fan, maybe that's what it's designed for, of course. But um, I believe in having a greater... Like, to me... And this is just an American sport, so if you don't watch it, you can't appreciate it. Like the only the, the the super elite recruits in football will go to an elite Division One school, and of those, only the super elite of those will make it to the NFL. And of those, only a super elite tiny proportion will have a lengthy career over five years. Like it's incredibly difficult. And the point being is, you could take who won the national championship, Clemson. They beat Alabama, right? You could take Clemson and put them up against the Browns, which went one what one game this year, two games, something like that, and the Browns would smoke them, smoke them. In other words, there's a clear differentiation between levels, and some of those guys on Clemson are going to play in the NFL next year. But to have a, I, I like a big gap between levels. That, that there is something I think appropriate about having clear spacing between them um, to the extent you can have it. That matters. The UFC probably won't give Joe Rogan a proper send-off when he leaves his position. False. They'll, def they'll definitely give him one. I know a lot. I don't know if I can get into the whole Mike Goldberg thing again, but the UFC didn't give Michael. Even if you like Mike Goldberg a lot, the UFC seems to me did not give him one because they did not want to give him one. I don't think they wanted Mike Goldberg services at all, at least the new ownership anyway. And whether or not you agree with that fact or you like it, you have to wrestle with it. And that is an arbitrary thing to deal with in the entertainment world. But that is that is the one in which we exist. Cowboy Cerrone's kicking game is better than Anthony Pettis's, despite the fact that he lost to him. That is interesting. So I did a Monday morning analyst looking at a f like four of the head kick KOs that Don Cerrone had. And two came from one side, two came from the other, and all four came in kind of unique ways. I do believe that the kicking, I'll say this, better or worse, I don't know. It doesn't get nearly the amount of praise it deserves. Don Cerrone's kicking game, especially head kicking game, right, uh, is tremendous. Like, his leg kicks are not all that great. His body kicks are good. His teeps are okay. Um, but his head kicks, everything kind of sets those up. And it's because he has such dexterity He's so fast. He can follow a game plan. He can make a quick, reactive, athletic decision. Um, he can read openings. He's really, 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 really good. He's really good. Given how well the UFC has dealt with lawsuits in the past, Mark Hunt's legal team will eventually have to reach a settlement if it doesn't get thrown out of court, which I think is probably likely. Mm. All right. The Nick Diaz situation. Yeah, I'm have a little bit of, I might have some news for you. Not news, but how look, what do you think of the Nick Diaz situation? Some quick questions about it. Do you think it is true that he turned down a fight with Connor and Woodley? I don't know about that. What is he waiting for, do you think? He was on that Snoop Dogg show. He said he wants a title shot. Something like it. <laughs> Pretty simple. 
fights that you would think outrageous. Now you say, what is a title shot too? But maybe at 185 or something. I, I don't know exactly. Do you think we will see him fight again and win? Yes. Sometime this year. Will there be a Diaz brother on UFC 209? I don't know why people want Diaz brothers on UFC 209. I get it. Like they're from the 209 area code. They say 209 a lot, but it's like a weird, like UFC 209 has nothing to do with the, that 209. It's just a coincidence of three numbers. That's fine. I mean, I'm not against it. I'm just saying, I'm not like, oh my God, it needs a Diaz brother. It'd be great, but I mean, it'd be just fine without it too, I suppose. Um, I've, I've heard this now from multiple sources and I've, didn't want to do it until uh, I heard it a few times. Uh, my understanding is he turned down fights with Robbie Lawler and Matt Brown. That's my understanding. Um, and Dana White confirmed to me that he had turned down a welterweight fight. I think he, my understanding is he turned down two of them um, with Brown and uh, Lawler. So keep that keep that in mind. But I mean, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like to me and to you, either of those fights would be unbelievable. It'd be unbelievable fights, right? You would love them, uh, especially the, the Lawler fight. I have been on this very chat this, describing my fervent need to see that rematch, but apparently Nick Diaz just has other ideas, man. I, I'm like you. I would like to see a list of like, okay, Nick, like put down a list. Like who do you want to fight? Let's – and what are the numbers that attach to each of them? Just so we know, like what's the roadmap here? I mean, you can call the roadmap ludicrous. You can call it crazy. You can call it whatever you want. I would just like to know, like you, because we're throwing, when I say we, the UFC is throwing these seemingly excellent opportunities at him, and he just doesn't seem very interested. Not that he doesn't want to fight, just mention those. So we'll see, man. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, Mark Hunt, thoughts on Hunt suing the UFC? He just announced a UFC fight. Do you expect him to get pulled as a result? Well, I think doing so would be illegal. Um, although I'm not entirely sure about that, but that's my understanding. It would be a bad look no matter what, so I don't think he will. Um, but it will be interesting to see if they ice him out of any kind of media opportunities. Let's see. Oh, here we go. It's about Cerrone here real quick. Cerrone, six head kick KOs in the UFC rank first. Belfort second with four, only Krokop has more KOs. By kick in UFC WEC Pride Strike Force with eight. Interesting. That is from uh, the official donks behind uh, Fight Metric. Um, Mark Hunt's lawsuit. So I'm going to talk to Eric, I believe I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, McGrocken, uh, who runs Combat Sports Law. Uh, you can go read Paul Giff's analysis at Bloody Elbow. They don't have a whole lot to say about it other than describing what the lawsuit says. It seems to me on the face of it, the RICO charges don't. Um, hold a whole lot of promise. I, I guess I'll get their perspectives later about that. I, it seems like there's a substantial burden of proof that they wouldn't, that he would not be able to reach. But okay, like a lot of lawsuits sort of throw the book at something and just sort of see what sticks. So that the RICO stuff might be hard to prove um, and, and ultimately uh, a irrelevant con uh, factor here. It's fine. Um, so then let me pull up exactly what it says he's asking for. Um, Hunt is seeking compensatory damages according to proof, triple damages, and punitive damages sufficient to deter illegal doping in the sport of mixed martial arts. Um, what else is he claiming? Right, so, he, uh, conspiracy to commit crime related to racketeering, fraud, false pretenses, breach of contract, breach of covenant of good faith, and fair dealing, negligence, and unjust enrichment. These are a number of conditions of which I have no 
uh, ability to speak about as any kind of expert in the law. So in some sense, I'm as absolutely blind as you. But in reading the analysis about this, um, first, what appears what's going to happen is UFC's probably going to try and get thrown out of court. They've had a measure of success in doing so. Um, I believe they have filed court in Nevada, which means, I won't say it's in UFC's favor, but they prefer it there. Right? That's why they tried to get it moved when um, Couture took them to court in Texas. So there's that. Um, it's way too early to tell what's going to happen with it, but I think a couple of things stood out to me about the lawsuit itself. One, the balls of Hunt to do it while under contract, um, number one. Two, the balls to do it at all. Uh, three, um, the Vitor Belfort situation with John Jones and Toronto from UFC, what, 152? That, that has come back to haunt them. Boy, that was a costly error by them, huh? Uh, Josh Gross reporting on it in Deadspin, MMA media picking up on it after some time. Um, at a minimum, it is not a good look for Zufa. I mean, who, who knows what actually happened? At a minimum, it is not a good look for them. Um, if you want to take a more jaundiced view of it, it certainly makes them look conspiratorial, right? That is one interpretation you could make. That's the one that they use in this lawsuit. It is very much a linchpin of a, of, a, of a wider argument because if you just look at the particular cases of Hunt versus Lesnar uh, or, or Hunt versus Mir or Hunt versus Bigfoot Silva, it would it would appear uh, unfair and um, certainly to some extent having an effect on his career, but it wouldn't amount to any kind of conspiracy. Um, and it may not amount to any kind of conspiracy ultimately anyway, but having that Vitor Belfort argument where it, it appears there's a matter of concealment, that there's a matter of uh, letting a fight go on when there is somebody who is clearly using something in a, in a way that is outside the normal boundaries of uh, any kind of medicine or common doping, doping standards. Um, and the issue gets complicated there too, about were they following Ontario's rules, were they following Nevada's rules? We, we don't have to dredge all those back up again. But nevertheless, that is very much a central linchpin um, that I think adds a certain degree of weight to his argument. Ultimately, it's going to be up to a judge to decide how much weight. It's not a good look, I can tell you that. I think the other thing that really stood out to me was, first and foremost, that um, it'll either get thrown out or I suspect the UFC will want to settle. There's no way they want to go to any kind of a trial with this. I mean, no chance. What that settlement will look like is unclear. But um, the other thing that stood out to me was, you know, we always talk about, oh, the fighters saw that $4 billion and now all of a sudden they decided they want to exercise leverage and, and determine their full amount of their worth. And that $4 billion figure came up here. In other words, in every kind of available window, a fighter has to exercise leverage. And you may think that this particular case of Mark Hunt is in no way, shape, or form a money grab that this is merely him trying to write a grotesque injustice, that um, this is a righteous cause. You might think that, and I'm, that's fine. I'm not here to argue about that. Um, nevertheless, that, that, that $4 billion is a north star for, for fighters who feel like um, there's a path to a greater financial future, right? to a better financial future that has been withheld from them. And if it's a guy just in the middle of a contract negotiation, if it's a guy trying to get a little more money for a fight, if it's a fighter suing, they're all converging and training the guns on that on that argument. That is that is also a defining 
I won't say defining principle, but that is a um, it's in this particular case utterly symbolic of this organization in conjunction with the John Jones argument that has accrued enormous wealth and done so according to Hunt in this conspiratorial and negligent way. We'll see what a judge has to say about it, but um, boxers suing promoters happens a lot in boxing, so this is not entirely objectively new ground. It is certainly for MMA, for a fighter to be suing the UFC while competing for them, like literally has a fight scheduled. That is unusual, certainly, um, but perhaps an inevitability too. Perhaps it's just interesting that it took this long. And look, maybe this will be some kind of... Um, in the in the absence of look, in the absence of a fighters union, this is what some fighters will resort to. It turns out, right? If there was a fighters union, there would be a there would be a I don't know if they would be shielded from all litigation, but there would in this particular case, I would imagine there would very much likely be a process by which someone who feels like they had been wronged could pursue um, some kind of justice. There would be a there would be a mutually agreed upon system in place that a fighter could follow in this particular case there is none which works against them because most don't know what to do they don't know how to do it they don't want to do it because it's costly uh and then there are others who are just going to do the craziest thing imaginable what right and this is not maybe that but it's up there certainly unusual because it's a free-for-all it's a total free-for-all when you have it whenever you have a free space unless you have these prevailing norms that exist to define conduct in that space um, guys are going to do everything and anything. It's just interesting that it took this long. The prevailing norm was basically just to eat it. But that norm is being slowly eroded. And as it gets eroded, <laughs> you guys are seeing it. Uh, anything is possible. Truly anything. It's amazing. Uh, but I don't think he'll get pulled. Tony versus Habib. Now that this fight is looking like it will be made, how excited are you about seeing it? I cannot wait. Can you do a quick breakdown and give your prediction for who you think will win? Well, this one is not... Habib fights are never too difficult to figure out, right? If he can't win on the floor, he probably just can't win. Um, I, am, I am not hoping that's an interim title fight. I would like for it to be five rounds independent of that. But if it takes making an interim title to make it five rounds, I will I will be okay with that. I will truly be okay with that. Where's my dog? Oh, there he is, sleeping. Um, I I love this fight in every way imaginable. I love it when there are two contenders on a war path. I'd have been fine if Habib had gotten the title shot. I'd have been fine if Tony had gotten the title shot. Whenever you have those kinds of scenarios and you got a champion who's sort of a little bit hard to reach um, because of his stature, Doing something like this just makes all the sense in the world. I can't tell you how much I love this fight. I think lightweight is, and for the foreseeable future, the best division in mixed martial arts. These are two guys right at the top of it. Arguably, one of them could be the next champion. Tony Ferguson, you have a style where he is an excellent wrestler, super underrated wrestling. People don't talk about his wrestling enough because he, you know, he takes chances. He'll roll for knee bars and stuff, and he'll sit all the way to his side for Darces. But he has excellent wrestling. You saw that against Junior Rafael uh, dos uh, Anjos. Really great hips, getting his hips behind him when he needs to. Um, 
I don't think he has the trickiest guard, but he will not stall anywhere. He constantly is working for offense. You just got to love that about Tony Ferguson. It doesn't matter if he's on his back, if he's on top in turtle, if he's if he's punching you at distance, if he's trying to land an uppercut, and he is always trying to press the action. I just I can't tell you how much I love that about him. So that's interesting. And then the other side, you have Habib Nurmagomedov, who in my judgment is the best full-on grappler in MMA. And by that, I mean... Um, you know, he doesn't have the same kind of guard that Demi and Maya does. I don't think he has the same kind of pressure passing. I, in that sense, he's not the best grappler. But if you add in takedowns and then the variety of takedowns that he has when he can go from you know, singles, doubles, knee picks, uh, ankle picks, uh, low singles, Harai Goshis, Uchimadas, Tayotoshis, Seonagis, like he's got it all. He's got it all. He's got it all. He's got it all. Plus, he can do rides when you're in turtle. Um, um, you know, it, it's just amazing the level of control that a guy like that has. Super, super impressive. So the knock on him is that obviously um, his stand-up is not super developed, and a guy like Tony Ferguson has a long reach and can dive into range, could make problems for it. On the other hand, that could also open him up. You know, one of the criticisms of Tony is that he's got an incredible offense, but in taking a lot of these risks, he leaves a lot of openings. Now, he usually, more recently, has gotten himself out of it, but I think it's going to be what I what here's what I think about this fight. It's going to be highly offensive. Both guys constantly stacking offense on top of each other, and I don't know who's going to come out in the end. You can see a great case for Habib because of his dominant top control in wrestling. You can see a great case for Tony because he's just so unrelenting and he has wrestling and grappling skills to to match the best in the division too. How can you not love that one, man? That is what this is all about. Plus, both guys have a big mouth. They fight with a chip on their shoulder, and there's a huge prize at the end of that tunnel, man. This is, um, man, this is this is what you wait for. This is what you wait for. Two of the best guys with incredible records in the best division with a lot to fight for, incredibly unique fighting styles, both in their prime. If you don't like that, I don't know what to tell you. Justin Gaethje. What do you think of Justin Gaethje's last fight, and how far do you think he can go? God, man, poor Justin Gaethje. I like Justin Gaethje a lot. How do you not admire his warrior spirit? You know, I mean, if someone was like, if someone did a word association game with you, and they said, think of the first fighter when I say this word, or I say this description, or something, and you said something like tall, right? You might go, uh, Stefan Struve. Someone said fat. You might go, uh, Roy Nelson. If someone said, you know, heavy puncher. You might go a thousand different directions. You might go Anthony Johnson. You might go Conor McGregor. You might go whatever. If someone said bite down on the mouthpiece and swing, I mean, how could you come up with anyone else but Justin Gaethje? This guy is, I mean, he takes so much damage in his fights. And I've asked about this and I was like, are you not concerned about this? And his basic answer is, I am well aware that this carries health concerns. I just don't care. Now, he says that now, maybe when the health problems begin to creep, he will have a change of attitude. But he is full of vinegar and piss. That is just who he is. And this is the way he fights. And I don't think you can talk him out of it. Frankly, I don't know that he would be any more effective doing something else. I mean, I, because he has a wrestling background, maybe you could get him to like focus more on that a little bit. Um, but he, 
doesn't seem to care about that sort of thing. Uh, and if you if you're saying out loud that you're that the health consequences are basically not irrelevant, but not enough to make you change who you are, or what you're going to do. What I don't know what you say at that point. Him and Firmino were going at it, dude. And Firmino was taking his lunch money in the second round. I mean, he was hitting him with everything. Everything was landing, including like a f jump knee right up the middle. Kaboom, snapped his head back. I mean, it was sick. And he came back hard in that third round uh, and then busted up Firmino's right eye to the point where he couldn't continue medically at the end of the round. He got tuned up a little bit in that fight. And um, I think there's obviously an upper bound limit to what Justin Gaethje can reliably do in a cage. He's very, very talented. And his ability to withstand all that punishment and being a good wrestler and a heavy leg kicker and a heavy puncher and willing to stand in the right kind of place to deliver a heavy, heavy shot, you know, that, that makes him super dangerous, right? I mean, he's willing to take an extraordinary amount of risk. You just have to wonder when the bottom's going to drop out on this, you know. Um, man, if you did not see his last fight, if you didn't see any of his fights, go check him out. This guy, it's just, uh, it's, it's 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 as shocking as it is satisfying as it is disheartening. Like you cheer and you're like, oh my god! You're like, oh my god! You know, every part of the human emotion that you can have watching a fight, at least the three major components of it, you get with him. And um, it's because he's talented. It's because he fights in such an exciting way, and because that exciting way carries with it a substantial physical burden that he is heretofore willing to willing to bear uh I don't, I don't know what to do about it except to say you know he's the kind of guy where you need medical um you want better medical screenings right because he the current state of medical screenings he's gonna pass i feel like and i feel like when brain scans get better um I could be wrong about this. Certainly, I'm I am no medical professional, but he seems like an obvious candidate for a guy who might be able to pass the old battery of tests to get licensed. Licensed, and when a new battery of tests emerge with better technology, I don't know that he would be the first candidate I would put up there and say, "Oh, he can pass this, no problem." But I do love watching him fight. I I, I can't deny it. I I don't know how you can be like I don't like watching Justin Gaethje fight. Why? I mean, it's. It's a. It's the most wild. He's a feral animal. I mean, he's a feral animal, truly. You think the UFC will sign him when he goes to free agency? They might. They might. You know, depending on what kind of price tag he's looking for. Let's do a true false here. John Jones comes back in 2017 and becomes champion. True. Conor McGregor ends 2017 again as a two-weight world champion. False. Ronda Rousey returns in 2017. I hope that's true. I really would like to see her continue, making substantial changes. If she's just going to come back with Edmund, then she should stay retired. Um, but if she's going to make substantial changes in her life, I would like to see her come back. I would really hate, I would really hate for the story of Ronda Rousey to end this way and to give validation to these creeps who have denied her her due. I mean, look, we talked about it last week. The level of hyperbole around her is or was, anyway, impossible to ignore. But if you ignore all of that hyperbole, just strip it all away, and you separate fact from fiction, her accomplishments are extraordinary. And I would hate for that to get lost because it'd be convenient to get run for your show, uh, Jason Whitlock, Clay Travis. 
um, by saying you know these absurd, frankly irresponsible things. By the way, I've started using stevia in my coffee uh, as a means of eliminating as much sugar as I can from my diet. Stevia is what's the word I'm looking for? Um, stevia tastes like you ever, you ever get a tooth cleaning? Like I say, they have to you know, they drill down on the molar, right? You know what I'm talking about? And they put that like gunk in there, and it feels like you've got like pencil shavings in your mouth. And what, remember when they clean your mouth out? That leftover feeling, the leftover taste in your mouth. It's like semi-rubbery, semi-medicinal. That's what stevia is. When people are like, oh, I love stevia. It's so good in my coffee. I'm like, you just don't like coffee because this is ruining the coffee. I mean, I'll drink it because I'm trying to cut out some sugar, but I would not present this as like delicious coffee. I would present this as, um, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to describe it. Like a rubbery bladder got popped in my mouth or something. All right. Anyway. Brock Lesnar returns in 2017. I will say false, but I don't know. Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz trilogy will happen in 2017. I'll say true. Nick Diaz, Robbie Lawler rematch will happen in 2017. I will say false. USADA catches the UFC champion in 2017. Ooh, I'll say false. Europe will have five or more UFC champions in 2017. Five or more. Okay, we got Ian Jacek. You got McGregor. Uh, you don't have Woodley. You got Bisping, but that I don't know how long it's going to last. We'll see. Um, don't have Cormier. Don't have Miocic. Don't have Phantom or Fly. And Brazil has uh, both featherweight and women's bantamweight. I will say false. Your Wizards will win the Southeast Division in 2017. God, who cares? I mean, I know they had 10 straight home wins last night against the Bulls, but like, just, I mean, even if they make the playoffs, who cares? They're not going to beat you know anyone. Uh, your Wizards will end higher in the 2017 regular season than Ariel's Knicks. I'll just say true. <laughs> and who will be the fighter of the year at the end of this year? God only knows. I have no clue. Mark Hunt story and MMA journalist. The Mark Hunt is suing the all caps UFC and Dana White story involves alleged negligence, cover ups, steroid use, and Brock Lesnar plus. Mark Hunt is still fighting for the UFC and has a fight soon. Question, is this story an MMA journalist's wet dream? It's certainly good for business if you're just looking at clicks. I would, I would caution that there's nothing... The newness of this is that he is suing while he has a fight booked. That is interesting. And it, to me, it's not coincidental that he waited until he got a fight booked to, to file the lawsuit. So that's worth noting as well. Um None of the information otherwise is new. Now, he he claims that the UFC knew before four months that Brock Lesnar, that they were doing business with Brock Lesnar. In other words, that the four-month window was not needed. Um, I would like to see him prove that. But if he doesn't prove that, then there's no new information here. It's just synthesized information. The newness as it stands today, as I speak to you today, is just the act of what he did. Jose Aldo versus Max Holloway. How do you see this fight going down and who do you see winning? I could see either winning. I think it's very close. I really believe it's to what extent Jose Aldo um, 
is able to control the movement of Max Holloway with leg kicking. Just to what extent he's able to define that. Wonder Boy rematch and fighter careers. On the surface, Woodley Thompson 2 makes a lot of sense, but is this actually a good move for Wonder Boy? If he should lose, it's difficult to see him getting another shot at Woodley for a while, and if Woodley should remain champ for a long time, this effectively leaves Wonder Boy into no man's land, similar to Benavidez and Mighty Mouse. Benavidez might get a title shot here pretty soon. Contrast this with Dillashaw, who didn't get an immediate rematch, and is now possibly in a better position, having stamped his authority in the division and now facing a new matchup for the title. Just how should fighters manage their careers when in a situation like Wonder Boy, i.e. not winning a title fight, is an immediate rematch the best option? I think in the case of Dillashaw versus Cruz, he had a right to claim one too, because again, it, it was another condition where it was very controversial, very close finish. The case of, um, of Woodley and Wonder Boy was a straight up draw. Majority draw, but a draw. And so that really leaves you in a very sticky position. When you have a controversial split decision, it's a little bit easier to pivot away if you're the matchmaker. It's much less easy to do when you have a, two of the three judges, however inept some of them might be, saying it was a draw. And I think a lot of observers at home also scoring it that way. Uh, although scores, admittedly, were all over the place. Um, so that... Take that into consideration. I think I think you're right, though. I think a lot of these guys, and we saw it with RDA, right? He, RDA is a perfect example. RDA loses to Pettis. Sorry, what am I saying? <laughs> he beat Pettis. He loses to Alvarez, and then he comes back and he says, I'm going to get right back on that horse. I want to fight Tony Ferguson because the logic is I was the champion. If I beat this guy, I'll go right back to the top of the, 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 the queue. I won't lose anything. And then he goes and loses to Ferguson, and now he's out of the division entirely. Right, so this is the sort of thing that you're outlining. I, I would say, in the case of Wonder Boy, when you when you end a fight on a draw, that makes the equation much more, much more difficult. And I understand there's got to be this absolutely enormous, enormous, enormous pressure to say I don't want to lose what I had. Because look, there is no guarantee. Even if they give you the number eight guy, the number eight guy at welterweight, it's going to be tough, right? Especially in those divisions, it's going to be really, really tough. Uh, to get back there. Uh, and, and I'm sure RDA was like, why would I want to go fight the number eight or number nine guy when I can go fight the number one or number two guy or, or two or three guy? But the problem is, as you've outlined, if, if you don't absolutely get that win, you have really, really disadvantaged yourself. I would say that for sure, if you lose a fight and you lose it badly, even if there is a way for you to get a rematch, don't take it. If you get finished in a fight, I know that's a little bit different than what you're asking, but like when Chris Weidman, yeah, well, Chris Weidman. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that he should have been fighting Yoel Romero, much less. I mean, I wasn't against it, but he needs a tune-up fight. It's what he needs. You don't give tune-up fights to bad fighters. You give tune-up fights to good fighters, because guys need to rebuild slowly. Look at the case of Michael Chandler. I, I could have sworn man, after that last Brooks fight. I was like, I don't know what he's got left. And then they gave him what you, well, these are gimme fights. Right, right. That's the whole idea. They give them gimme fights early, not because they want to give them gimme fights forever, but because you you don't quit on a guy who's had a bit of a rough run. And look what happened. He gave Benson Henderson the business. Now, he faded there a little bit late, but I thought he won that fight clean. Three rounds, definitely four. I'll say definitely three, maybe even four. And the first round was arguably 10-8. Like he went and he went after him. 
And Benson Henderson fought that fight better than any other fight he's had in Bellator. Like, he did not look bad in that one. It was just Michael Chandler looked better. Why? Because they gave him a chance to just rebuild, reinvigorate, retool some things so that by the time another big fight had to happen, he had had a measure of physical restoration. He had had a measure of career reformation. He had had a measure of game transformation. I sound like Jesse Jackson in his prime up here, but you know what I mean? You guys know what I'm talking about. That's that's the kind of thing you need. And like Chris Weidman needs that a little bit. Now you're asking about title shots and things. It, it, it changes the stakes so dramatically. It's almost impossible to talk these guys into a rational course of action. But there is enough evidence to suggest that um, you know if you lose to the title holder barely, and you went up to that title, you know by just running over people. And to an extent, Wonderboy did that. If he didn't get this title shot, I would say, you know, take a fight against someone that is very manageable and then work your way back up. Um, um, but it just makes it hard when it's a, when it's a, when it's, you know, split decision loss, it's easier to pivot a, a draw. You have to understand psychologically what that does to some of these guys. They see the draw and they're like, I didn't lose. There's not, and there's no way I'll lose a second time because they're so competitive. It's just, it makes it very, very difficult. Split decision would make it easier to talk to them about things like that, but what are you going to do? So this is Lorenz Larkins. Any updates on Larkin? Uh, I have tried to talk to him and I'm told by his management, he is not speaking right now. So there is that. Oh, Miles jury update. Somebody reached out to me and said he has new management. Um, so I need to reach out to them and see what's up with that. All right. Fantasy matchups. I'll love these. Velasquez, John Jones. I would go Jones at this point. DC Garb, or excuse me, DJ Garbrandt. Garbrandt's too big. Aldo versus Barboza. Barboza. McGregor versus Wonderboy. Hmm. I guess Wonderboy's a little bit too big. Weidman versus Jacare. Jacare. CM Punk versus Manny Pacquiao with six months. <laughs> Manny Pacquiao. CM Punk versus Frankie Edgar. Yeah, CM Punk. Okay, can we just put a moratorium on something? Because he put he wrote it here. If you're if you're still doing the who the who the fook is that guy jokes, those are the new Chuck Norris jokes. And Chuck Norris jokes were never funny and were only designed for people who don't know actually how to be funny. So if you're still doing the who the fook is that guy joke. You're playing yourself. Please stop. They were funny when Conor McGregor did it. They were hysterical when he did it. They were hysterical for maybe a week, maybe even two afterwards. Guys, it's it's been a while, right? Almost two months. It's, it's time to let it go, okay? From me to you, stop telling MMA's version of Chuck Norris jokes. You're welcome. Uh, finally, if you were on a bus and a person behind you was pulling on your seat, you get up and turn around to find us John Cena there wearing a you can't see me shirt, eating a baked turkey sandwich with yellow mustard and cranberry sauce. What do you do? I uh, shove the sandwich in his face and run. This is about John Cena. I don't watch him as pro wrestling. I'd rather die. But uh, you guys ever seen his training with Mark Bell, uh, Super Training Gym? He is uh, for at, I mean, he's not a pro lifter. He's an amateur lifter. For an amateur lifter, he is excellent. He's an excellent lifter. Uh, Chris Brown versus Soldier Boy. Do you think it's sad that this is the biggest fight in boxing right now? <laughs> and who you got? I would say it's sad, but like if they were going to do an MMA fight, we'd be talking about it. 
We would. I'm sorry. We would. Especially now that you got Mike Tyson involved. You got 50 Cent involved. I think Floyd's involved in some capacity or something. Uh, I would go Chris Brown, I guess. I'm hoping for a double KO, but I don't really know. I said there was a question about something that I'm looking for. I don't see it. Let me go jump to that now. Okay. I'm going to jump to something here. UFC's underwhelming black American demographic. Hi, Luke. I'm a longtime black mixed martial arts fan. And unfortunately, I've always been in the minority in that regard due to MMA's primary demographic and what I feel like is a lack of promotion towards the black community. Can you explain why the UFC hasn't made a concerted effort to make to market towards black Americans? Also, do you believe the recent backlash fighter like backlash fighter? Also, do you believe the recent backlash? I think you mean against fighters like Tyron Woodley and Angela Hill. Uh, in terms of what did they receive from fans, is it simply for expressing pride in being a successful black athlete will diminish black viewership? Now, someone responds below that and says the following: This is not my words. This is theirs. Disclaimer: These opinions are my own. Do not represent any kind of universal truth. Blah 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 blah. This person writes, it's clear they are not reaching out to the black community as directly as they should. Right now, there are two active black champs, one of which is arguably the pound for pound greatest of all time in DJ, and Jones certainly fits the mold as well. One would think it would be relatively easy to bring in those viewers. Woodley spoke to the fact that in order to gain those viewers in the UFC, he needs to educate the community on the sport. One way to do this would be to put people like DC and Woodley and any other black fighter in a broadcast position where they can educate the public about the sport, particularly the grappling aspect, in addition to providing the color, the commentary color they already uh, do. I come from a Latino background. And while a completely different group of people, our community is similar to the African-American one in the sense that most people associate combat sports solely with boxing, as that has been in the area where we have had the greatest success in innumerable champions. Very true. That history has been passed down through generations of fight fans and has become ingrained in our consciousness. MMA, on the other hand, is new. And the ground fighting has always been a barrier of entry for all people, not just minorities. The right people to explain to viewers what is going on on a dedicated platform in which to do so would be enormously positive toward gaining more viewers. So there are other little things they could do as well. Get rid of the, quote, shit metal face the pain music. Get some thick black and Latino, <laughs> Latino ring girls. I wouldn't be opposed. And overall, reach out to alternative media outlets to develop deeper relationships with those communities. Vibe or the Source magazine, for example. There's not a single black guy who doesn't know who Tiger Woods is, despite the fact that it's largely a sport played by white people. Boy, there's a lot going on there. Um, we've talked about the Woodley and Angela Hill stuff previously. Um, so I'll set that aside. But the separate question here is UFC's, as you put it, UFC's underwhelming black American demographic. So I've made this point before. If you ever go to, uh, I guess he doesn't compete anymore, but I'll never forget um, before these things sort of occurred to me, and I was still early, I would go to like a Mayweather fight at a bar, and it would be a mixed crowd, but predominantly uh, black, African-American, maybe some Latinos as well. This area didn't have a lot of Latinos itself, so it made sense that there weren't some there. And then you go to like a, a UFC event at a bar, and it would be heavily white. Um, now, part of that makes sense. The country is predominantly white for now. Um, and the minority groups are not as big. So there is some sort of way to say that that general phenomenon makes sense to, an, to a degree. I think some of the things you also highlight there also make sense, that 
the boxing world has a much, much deeper tie to the uh, African-American and Latino communities than MMA does. One, by virtue of its longer existence. But two, for example, we have several boxing gyms. Let's just use DC as an example, right? Let's use DC. Let's break down the demographics, white population in DC. I think for the first time, it's the majority. All right, so the total population of DC is 600,000, your nation's capital, okay? Black or African-American is about 305,000, so about 50%. White is 38%, and Hispanic or Latino is nine. So the majority of the residents here are black, but they're all sort of, not all, they're majority concentrated in certain areas and neighborhoods. Um, the boxing gyms you see outside of those neighborhoods are exercise gyms, like uh, LA Fitness or something. Um, there was a UFC gym down on M Street, but they closed that one. I'm not sure why. Um, by the way, M Street is right outside of Georgetown. Just keep that in mind. Um, if you look at Headbangers, it's in Southeast, which is a historically black neighborhood. It's where Marion Barry comes from. Um, if you look at, there's a gym on H Street, another one. That's where the riots happened after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And there's another one on 14th Street that is a youth development project. Not like a housing project, like a the gym gets money from the uh, from the city to as part of a uh, one of the larger programs in the city that helps disadvantaged youth. In other words, look at where they are located and look at what purpose they serve. Look at who their clientele is. Right. I mean, how many people want to go and actually be boxers? So there's something to be said about that, too. Right. People will just want to go and hit a heavy bag and, you know, burn 500 calories an hour or something like that. But I just mean, if you just take your own city, look where the gyms are, look who's going to them and look who the clientele is. It's totally different than what you would see at an MMA gym. Like if you go, I, you know, the gym that I'm a member of, like people there are attorneys, you know, and I, this is not merely a poverty issue. But I'm just sort of pointing out that, like, number one. You know, because we have plenty of, I think uh, it's a diverse group at our gym as well. But I just mean, which one has a tie to a community? Which one has a, is embedded in um, um, uh, in the fabric of someone's social network in real life? Boxing does that in a lot of these major cities. It's just the, it's the case everywhere. Um, it attracts a certain kind of population. It rejects a certain other kind, and it's not this commercial transaction thing, which many MMA gyms are. And of course. All different people, all different kind of backgrounds can go. They can go train, right? I mean, there's plenty of Latino uh, dentists and there's plenty of uh, Asian, you name it, accountants who can afford all these kinds of things and they do and go train. But it's a very transactional relationship. The boxing ones are very much part of a um, uh, the fabric. And I think that's something to sort of consider over time. Like, it's not just that these MMA gyms are more expensive, which keeps out a lot of different kinds of people, but that they don't have this... The city doesn't look to the MMA gyms to develop the youth. Now, maybe they should, but they don't. Uh, and that's something to consider as well. I think the other part is like, you know, outreach with these guys that we have. I, I've been asked this question a number of times. Um, you know, why doesn't the UFC outreach to certain, um, you know, if you have an, if you have an, uh, an African-American fighter that you really want to promote to the African-American community, um, why don't they do a better job of it? 
It's a really complicated answer. On the one hand, I think you could say, look, look at what they did in 2016. Maybe they didn't go out and reach into these particular demos in the ways that would make you happy. Um, but they had a very successful year. In other words, is it really commercially necessary to drill down in the most specific of ways to generate interest for someone, um, including by based on their ethnic background? It may not, that may not be the case, right? That may not be the case. So like they haven't, they haven't done it because they haven't had to do it. They can still be commercially successful without it. I think that's a big component of it. I think too, and this is the part you have to sort of like come to terms with. And I don't know what the, I don't know if there's a better answer out there. If there is, I'd be willing to hear it. You know, where would you want to see some of these um, fighters featured, right? You could say all kinds of different places. You mentioned uh, Complex or what did, what did you have? You had um, Vibe or The Source magazine, things like that. Does Vibe and The Source care? Has the Vibe and The Source asked? You know, I, yes, you could be like, well, shouldn't PR pitch to them? Of course they should. Of course they should. But if they're not interested, you can't make them. People have always been like, well, why does certain fighters go on these, you know, Conan or um, uh, Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel? It's because those shows asked. Now, in the case of Conan or whatever, he might be a part owner at this point. But it's because those guys are invited. I mean, you can pitch these shows and that might work. But there has to be, a, it's a two-way process for the most part. Like, Pitching these places all the time, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but if they're not interested, it's you're going to see less representation. And given that they don't economically necessarily need to, given the support of the wider fan base, you just don't see a lot of it. So it's an expertise they haven't developed because they haven't had to. That's not the case in boxing, right? You absolutely need the support of those audiences um, to have success. You, you just do. You have an older white population um, who you can lean on to some extent, but you have these other um, media sources that focus on emerging demographics and minority demographics and you need them you need them and so they're much better by reaching out to it and i would imagine that a lot of those places are just more hospitable to those kinds of stories anyway so that's my sense of things uh diaz bros comparison hi luke how do you feel nick and nate's skills stack up against each other I'm not sure what you mean. I feel the general opinion was always that Nick was slightly more elite, but Nate certainly seems to have turned a corner following Michael Johnson's win. I wonder if he feels that he's now surpassed Nick's. I do not. A star is born. Marketing tactics and creating stars. Luke, have you noticed the growing trend in UFC marketing of them kind of just telling us that someone is a star? It's been happening a lot now, and some of these cases are somewhat deserved. But before the Nikita Krilov versus Misa Sirkunov fight, they repeated this line over and over the stars of tomorrow what do you think of this approach to making stars is it possible for someone to become a star simply by telling people they are one well if you repeat something enough people begin to believe it so there's something to be said for that but to answer your question no um and this is not new they've been doing this for years you can go back and you can watch old especially like what right when things begin to heat up you know during the couture liddell wars right as things begin to get kind of interesting um, they did a lot of that there too. So this is not new. And no, it doesn't work, but it doesn't help to, you know, to politely nudge or suggest things either. Let's see. So I'm just here to bash you for ducking questions. 
Luke Duck, my questions a few weeks ago when I was asked why was he pushing the agenda that Cyborg is some sort of superstar, even though her best ratings are 1.2 million on FS1. That's not her best rating, but okay. You should feel absolutely stupid for not knowing what we all knew that Freak Cyborg was juicing all along, but the media didn't and still doesn't care because they're playing victims because Ronda wouldn't talk to them. Well, if you have the uh, reading comprehension skills of a fifth grader, that might sound plausible. Second thing, uh, let's see, Ariel Hawani's up for MMA Journalist of the Year, even though blah, 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 blah. Uh, what else is going on? Is there a question here? Uh, I'm, this subject is the kind of person we're dealing with here. Amanda Sweaty asks, Nunez has been as classless as can be, yet nobody will talk about it because she doesn't make money for the UFC. No wonder she will never become a star, says this gentleman. Two huge events and still can't get 100K Twitter followers. Literally zero people bought one of her fight kits in Vegas. Peace out to everybody who isn't an MMA fighting or SB Nation. She'll remember. These journalists are not credible. You remember that, guys. Um, there is... Amid this word salad of nonsense, uh, there is one interesting point that he raises, which which we'll go to. He says, Amanda Nunes has been as classless as you can be, yet nobody will talk about it because she doesn't make money for the UFC. Um, I don't know why we wouldn't talk about it if the UFC doesn't care about her, but okay. That makes no sense. But let's talk about that for just a second, because I actually do think that's something worth discussing. Now, you might recall I had a bit of a different opinion than most heading into, or I should say after the fact of the um, Cowboy-Olivera fight versus Will Brooks. Olivera misses weight by a fairly substantial margin, goes out and fights Will Brooks. Will Brooks gets injured and loses. And when after it's over, he does the old cross chop. And a lot of you were very upset about that. And I had the point made, at the time, I made the point, you know, I'm not going to tell you that's not by traditional standards unprofessional, but I really don't care. And it's just a little odd to me that fans would want to police that when they enjoy other forms of really unprofessional conduct. Um, and th I think the general rule is that if the fans can get entertainment from it, uh, they won't say anything. And that's really the only rubric. There are no other rules. I saw folks being like, well, I like it when they're, you know, if you shouldn't miss weight, but then there's guys who've missed weight and been unprofessional and no one said anything. And then I saw some other ones being like, well, they shouldn't do it after a fight. Here's Amanda Nunes doing after a fight and no one is saying anything. It's because... I think they felt like there's a degree of comeuppance that Rousey deserved, uh, at least from the hardcore fan base. They liked that Nunez was not celebrated or promoted ahead of time, and she comes out and she's now putting pictures out on Twitter where she's like walking um, um, Ronda Rousey in a baby stroller and things like that. So, uh, so it actually leads to an interesting question because then Kat Zingano gets out there and was like, oh my God, Amanda Nunez was so unprofessional. And the truth of the matter is, is what Amanda Nunes did unprofessional, not merely the shh to uh, Edmund Traverdian, but the stuff after the fact. And again, by traditional sports standards, yes, yes, it is. Uh, and there is a certain silence about what she has done in terms of um, answering this question. And to me, which is, what is acceptable and unacceptable sportsmanship in mixed martial arts? Now, you could say, well, Zingano was also sort of saying that because she was potentially angling for a fight okay fair enough I'm not, i wouldn't say otherwise but it is all part of this debate about when you can and you can't be unprofessional and these artificial rules that some of you put up like oh you, if you miss weight you shouldn't do that oh if it's after a fight you shouldn't do it turns out none of that means anything <laughs> because we have a bunch of cases where they've done that since you've made those arguments and no one said anything in this particular case now many news made weight of course but um after the fight, 
Now this one I don't mind. I don't. I don't. I don't get too upset about it because right after a fight's over, I don't think. I literally do not think fighters are in their right mind, so I don't care about that. That one doesn't bother me too much. But then you know, going on social media and sort of being quite heavy-handed with it, and then the larger things she said after the fact, these would qualify as by any other standard unprofessional. I don't care, but I don't think you're hearing a lot because I think a lot of the fans get enjoyment out of it. Now, there was some pushback about Michael Page's do the Ronda Rousey dance because it felt like he was some sort of observer taking advantage of something, not not a key participant who at least have some um, you know, reason to want to be involved. But even then, it was split. Even then, it was split. The whole, I, the whole truth about pro- professionalism in MMA is as long as you don't break the actual rules, like you don't punch someone after the bell or something, Everyone's going to have a different interpretation of it, and that's fine. You might have a very strict standard. You might think that if you miss weight, what one thing. You might think after the fight, one thing. All those are okay. But what you have to sort of fundamentally accept is this idea that there's this code that everyone basically gets about what is and isn't allowed in terms of professionalism and unprofessionalism is total fantasy. It doesn't exist. It does not exist anywhere. Everyone kind of has a very malleable sense about things. And because truth and fiction begin to bleed together, particularly in the pre-fight stuff, less so in the post-fight, this idea that there's a rule about what line you can't cross. Oh my God, Eddie Alvarez made a claim about Conor McGregor, you know, taking welfare money, blah, 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 blah. Like, I agree that's unprofessional, but the 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 what what will bind it to or what will make it acceptable is whether or not someone got entertainment value from it. And as long as they do for the most part, as long as it doesn't break actual rules, like legitimate codified rules, there is no rule. So, yeah, Amanda Nunes was, I think, a little bit unprofessional what she did. But I'm not going to lose sleep over it, and I recommend you don't either, because the truth is, there are no rules. All right. Oh, good question. Tom Dukenwa in the UFC. Y'all know Tom Dukenwa? I know the hardcores do, but I don't know if the rest of you guys do. If you guys don't know Tom Dukenwa, and for my American friends who couldn't possibly spell that without assistance, D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-O-Y. Remember those like Canadian goalkeepers in hockey? Goalies? Roy, but they're pronounced Wa. Same thing. Tom Dukenwa. Blue Chip prospect Tom Dukenwall looks set to debut in the UFC this year, and I have three questions for you. First, do you think he'll compete at bantamweight or featherweight? Probably bantam. Second, who would you like to see him debut against? Uh, I don't care. I mean, anyone in the top 20. Uh, third, from what you've seen of him in Bama, what are the biggest knowns and weaknesses in his overall game? Well, he's really working on a lot of his weaknesses, which, of course, came from the grappling department. He is primarily a striker. Um you know, I still think he's a little bit reckless. He, he has a very different game than Tony Ferguson, but some of the same criticisms in a abstract sense could apply to him as well. Um, but I think he's really worked on his takedown defense. I think he's worked on his takedown defense in particular against the fence itself. Um, he has become a better scrambler. I just think he has to sort of continue on the path of where he is, and he's a really flashy, big-motion striker. Um, that's both a, a, a benefit and a liability, and we'll see how he handles that going forward. But talking about a really exciting addition to the UFC if that actually comes to fruition man I can't wait for that would be amazing really amazing he is a very very talented guy 
Uh, the money fight debate, BJ Penn and Max Holloway versus everybody else. It seems that Conor McGregor's blatant disregard for hierarchy and meritocracy, combined with the UFC finally having a price tag, uh, have inspired many fighters to begin pursuing these money fights. Um, however, there's a sentiment to the contrary, most effectively expressed by BJ Penn and Max Holloway recently. Go become your own money fight. What are your thoughts on the growing trend of people trying to bypass the traditional step of becoming a big star first, then demanding bigger money in the more nostalgic ideals expressed by Max and BJ? Um, I don't think this one's particularly complicated. One of the ways to become bigger is to be, be in bigger fights, so it would be natural for them to want to seek that out. I don't, I don't take too much of an issue with it. Again, that doesn't mean, because I don't take an issue with it, that I don't think you need to go along with it. Maybe you do. Maybe you love it. Okay. But when fighters start pitching certain fights to you, treat it as that act itself. They are pitching. They are offering up ideas. You don't have to accept them if you don't want to. So don't if you don't. I saw this as well. Luke, there's a rumor that Robbie Lawler left ATT. I have not heard any more than that. I, I was running errands all morning, so. But I have heard of that rumor. I, I can say that much. Um, asking about Meryl Streep. You don't really ask about Meryl Streep. Don't care. The only thing that bothered me about the Meryl Streep thing was because uh, I don't care about her comments. It's like, oh, if you'd be left with football and MMA. Yeah, great. Sweet. Awesome. Thank you. The only thing that bothered me about that was one, this like, and I know people like this, that it, you're probably not one of them if you're watching this podcast, but there are people in this world who believe that like, if you like sports, you are somehow less intellectually curious about the world, which is, <laughs> I mean, the biggest pile of nonsense uh, imaginable. What, what a ridiculous thing to think. Um, and I've encountered them. Uh, trust me. Uh, I know them quite well. Some people, some of them I'm friends with. Um, despite the fact that they have this antipathy towards uh, sports consumption. But um, that's one thing that sort of like got on my nerves a little bit. You know, we'd be left with football and MMA. Yeah, great, sweet. I'd be just fine. Thanks. The other part, though, was that it less less to do with her, but more people like, uh, you know, why are you mad that someone, 60-year-old lady, doesn't like it? I'm not mad that she doesn't like it, and not liking it isn't a crime. What the crime is, is the taxonomy, right? Um, you know, A, distinguishing it from pure performing arts, which you can't even actually do if you're talking about the wider martial arts world. But even if you want to, you know, have a separate classification in, in, the, in the taxonomy of things, you could do that. But again, it harkens back to this idea that, like, I, I don't like certain things, but I wouldn't necessarily look down upon those who did. That's a separate condition, right? If Meryl Streep doesn't like MMA, that's fine. She's perfectly allowed to not like it, but it's like, you know, you're not, trust me, you are not better than me because you're into performing arts in a way that I'm not. Let me assure you, you are definitely not smarter, might be richer, but um, you are not a more complete person. Um, the other one, though, was the Twitter reaction, which is, <laughs> uh, 
if you had the temerity to like react at all, there was this wave of response being like, you know, I, I'm like Seneca. I don't react to anything. I am emotionally um, like there is some kind of weakness in responding to this woman's you know, relatively, if not almost fully innocuous, but uh, uh, idiotic claim, right? Like, the, the, what, what, what do most people say sometimes? Not most people, what do a lot of people say sometimes? LOL, you mad. You know, like, right, I'm a human being who has a range of responses. Now, I'm not calling for a boycott. I didn't write a note on medium.com. I didn't call my senator. I, I, I put together in the course of five and a half seconds a tweet expressing that I disagree with this person for whatever reason. This is somehow beyond the pale of normal human emotion and, and response? I don't think so. Particularly on a platform designed to give oxygen to discussions and opinions uh, and moments such as this. That is what Twitter is for, right? People being like, I am so emotionally distant. You can set my house on fire and honor kill all the female relatives in my life, and I just won't even notice because look how centered I am. I don't think highly of you. <laughs> I, don't, I also don't think you are emotionally more balanced in some kind of way. To have some weird uh, inability to recognize that a small expression of dislike or distaste is well within the boundaries of rational discourse. <laughs> LOL. I, I, I'm so above this. I don't even react. Yeah, great. Sounds like you're emotionally dead inside. I'm not. All right, let's go to the uh, Twitter machine if we can. Why doesn't Jason Perillo get as much credit as other coaches when he was responsible for Bisping and Prime BJ? Um, Well, I'm going to have him hopefully on my show this week, so I can ask him that. But I think he had some notable failures too, and I don't think he makes a lot of noise as a coach. Like he doesn't go out there and brag. He doesn't do a lot of interviews. Um, I wouldn't call him distant from the media, but it's not. He's not like a celebrated figure in the media um, because he doesn't go out there and toot his own horn, which I think is a affects how he's viewed. Whose deadlift form is better, Ric Flair or Bryce Harper? Literally, Ric Flair. Now, it wasn't 400 pounds. It was 285. Go back and recount the plates. But Bryce Harper, did you all see Bryce Harper deadlifting with the uh, – and I think they were hex plates too, but I can't remember that. But um, did you all see his deadlift? It's on his Instagram. I thought his lower back was going to bust out it, like through the like, – like, like an alien coming out of the chest. I thought his spine was going to do that on the other side. Like, it's okay to have some thoracic rounding. Pete Rubish has a bunch of thoracic rounding, but though he had lumbar rounding, like the small of the back. I was like, oh, my God, Bryce. What are you doing, bro? Your assessment on this recently announced ballot. It's a sleeper fight of the night candidate given their fighting styles. Alex Casares versus Jason Knight. That's a fun one. I don't have too much of an emotion about it. Even Connor... Chael and Jon Snow respect after fights, and Ronda didn't disrespect Amanda prior to the fight. Okay. What happened to Travis Brown? Is he yet another of Edmonds' victims? If he loses the next one, what's next for him? I don't know if he loses the next one. That is going to be a tough, tough spot for him, to put it mildly. Mm. 
Where are Jimmy Hedis? I think he got cut, right? Pablo Garza, he was teaching in college. Paul Sass, I don't know. Martin Campman retired. Matt Wyman, I think he also retired. Uh, someone's asking who's a better fighter, Ray Leonard or Mayweather. I would say Ray Robinson. There's an amazing book on Ray Robinson. I think it's called Sugar. You should read. Like This guy's career was insane. Do you see the UFC doing any 2017 non-Connor pay-per-views, 1 million or even close? The UFC is pretty good about pulling a rabbit out of their hat. What that might be, I don't know. Any hope for BJ this weekend? Look, man. I was so desperately wrong about Andre Orlovsky and the rehabilitative services of Jackson Wink MMA. And I understand his situation is different, and I understand he's a different person in a very different division at a different point in his career. I grant you all those things. I'm not saying they're identical. If you have apprehensions about BJ, I share them with you. Believe me, my instinct is to say he's going to go in there and get washed. However, and this is a big however, I just didn't see like any of the Arlovsky reformation happening. And a lot of that made me rethink what was possible in the right hands to rehabilitate a career. On the one hand, we've already talked about it. Guys who've had devastating losses, who've come back, who've transformed their game. They got the right kind of fights and they became something different. Now, this is not that exactly. There's a lot of different factors involved here versus someone who had a loss and got tune-up fights and got better. I grant you all of that. But all I'm saying is I am going to just say, you know, is my instinct to think that bad things are going to happen to BJ Penn? That is what my brain is telling me. But after being so wrong about Andre Arlovsky, I'm just going to say, let's see what happens. Let's just see what happens. He might surprise us. You never know. MMA is an is a bizarre game where things you never think can happen happen all the time. I think having these ideas in your mind that, that X or Y or Z could just never happen here, I think that's a very bad idea. I don't think there's a lot of value to that. Uh, let's see. Who would you favor in a fight between Gunnar Nelson and RDA? RDA. So this is just a reminder for my interview for my blog. I know I haven't forgotten. I'm gonna I'm going to star that. If Aldo beats Max, he's fought the featherweights at least once, some twice. What does he do at that point? Go up? Yeah. What differences do you expect in the Woodley Wonderboy rematch? More wrestling. More wrestling from Woodley. I asked him about that uh, the, the like the day or two after the fight. And I was like, why didn't you wrestle more? It went real well for you. And he was like, I don't know. I don't know. Plus, it, it was obvious last time that Woodley, he already liked to do this, but it was a key component of the game plan, was to fade back and let Wonderboy come to him. Because if you chase Wonderboy, that's when he begins to catch you. Will he be able to do that effectively again next time? So those are the two things I'd be looking at. Uh, what's your issue with Chuck Norris? Nothing. My issue is with Chuck Norris jokes. Um, they're stupid. Stefan Strude versus Mighty Mouse. Yeah, good. If you had to choose a last meal, what would you request? Ooh, a last meal. Um... Probably a steak. Probably a steak. Probably um, probably a prime rib. 
something like that. I don't know. Medium rare, always medium rare. I know there's people like Sean Sheehan who cook their steaks to death. It's like, I'm going to cook my steak well done. You know why? Because I like cooking the flavor out of it. Uh, what do you think the redemption story could be like for Ronda if she changes camps and wins the title again? I think it could be extraordinary. That's a huge if you're talking about. But I really believe that people... You guys know this, man. Passions for these people die very hard and very slow. Um, and if she could somehow reform herself from rock bottom into something like she was before or something close to it even, it doesn't have to be exactly as dominant, but she can go out there and she can win fights, people will be right back on, man. But that, but that spark she was where she was going in and finishing people on an Instagram video when Instagram videos were like, what, 15, 16 seconds or something? I think those days are basically over. Not entirely, maybe, but basically. When was the last time you made a snowman? Uh, okay. Do you have any update on the MMAAA? So they actually reached out to me a little while ago for an interview, and I responded, and then they went silent. So take that for what it's worth. Who headlines a Cleveland pay-per-view show, Cody or Stipe? Stipe because he has the heavier weight class, which is typically how they um, typically how they do that. Would you eat a tablespoon of yellow mustard for $5,000? Sure. God, will the Cowboys make it to the Super Bowl? I effing hope not. T-Bow's win versus Trujillo is now a DQ loss. Lesnar beats Hunt and only gets an NC. What the F? I hope Hunt wins. Yeah, I don't know if I want Hunt to win. I don't think it's going to be one. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a win or loss kind of scenario. I think it's going to be. Um, uh, I think it's going to be, you know, some kind of settlement, which both parties win and lose, right? But I don't know how I feel about the lawsuit. Like, I don't know what it says. I mean, I know what it says in the lawsuit, but I don't know what it would mean for him to pressure the UFC into some kind of change. I don't know that some of the things he's asking for are necessarily what we need and are really like, it sounds real good in theory. Let's find these guys who dope. Let's take their purses away. You sure about that? I don't think we've thought that through. I'm not declaring it wrong. Please understand. I'm not declaring it wrong, but I am declaring that we haven't thought through that one at all. Thought, thought through that one at all, um, and what the consequences that be. Here's a perfect example of something that's a much grander scale. But like, did you guys see that some of these NADOs, these like um, essentially these anti-doping organizations in various, it stands for National Anti-Doping Organization, like so USADA or you know, there's one in Australia. Some of them are asking to be have Russia banned completely from sport international sport. I mean, do you understand how insane that is? It's not that the scale of what they did is not unprecedented. It's not that the scale of what has happened is, is extraordinary because it is. It is it, what you're talking about is something that carries potential diplomatic consequences um, where you are, you are isolating an enormous and enormously influential group um, from inclusion in matters of 
um, frankly, global importance to an extent in ways that like part of the only way in which we have a real connection to some of these kinds of countries is through sport. You know, if, if you're so feverishly in favor of these goals to the point where you want to isolate and remove um, one of these actors, rather than reforming attitudes about what realistically is possible, right? You want, you want to fracture in some ways further with potentially enormous consequences uh, a country who I admit, you know, it's like, uh, look, they cheated a lot. I know they did. I, I'm not arguing with it that, that they did in incredibly sophisticated and profound ways, but um, in brazen ways. But if your conclusion is to is to is to remove them from the community of nations, uh, which carries a host of costs that I don't think you want to pay for, um, I think I would check the premises of your argument. Is Wonder Boy entitled? I don't know. Will Russia end up being the new China for UFC? Anyway, you're asking how would how the hell does Russia relate to Marcon? I don't know that like maybe Marcon's lawsuit will be uh, the sort of um, thunderbolt that we need to to make things better in the sport. It, it might be, but part of me also wonders like if you're if you're having to sue while under contract, win or lose, I don't know if that's the right answer, but something is fundamentally missing in the game. Uh, maybe it's a union, maybe it's a perspective about what we can really realistically achieve with anti-doping. Um, uh, I don't know, but yeah. Uh, any updated on the UFC 2 card for a co-main? No. Thoughts on the Irish minister for sports saying he's going to tackle disturbing MMA? Yeah, and I don't know how to feel about that. Like, on the one hand, I talked to some Irish, and they're like, I don't know, man, there's a lot of people pushing back against MMA. And then I talked to some other Irish, and they're like, nah, it's a community you have to ignore. And there's hardly any of them. So I don't really know what the truth is there. Maybe the Irish can, can write me an email at luke.thomas at sbnation.com and help me out with that because I don't really have a good sense of that. How do you think Hunt will fare? Should he have asked Randy Couture about fighting UFC in court? What would he have to gain by talking to Randy Couture? They have two completely different uh, lawsuits, two completely different things. Thoughts on the Legacy FC weigh-in fiasco. Was that fighter right to refuse to fight? Oh, I have to keep up with that scenario. Do you think Tony Ferguson uh, was cut a check to take the fight, or did he cave and take the fight on the same contact contract? My understanding is that there was a middle ground reached. Give your impression of the odds of Mark Hunt win in court as a percentage. 0.00001%. Isn't part of the problem of Machida's suspension that he didn't appeal and has been silent? It's hard to be outraged when he isn't. Sure. 